In Paul's letter to the Philippians, the 27th verse of the first chapter, we read these words. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now this is the important bit. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's that last phrase. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Question. What is the faith of the gospel to which and for which and in which we are striving? What is the faith of the gospel? Answering that question is the theme of this new series. And to answer that question, we're going to be studying one book which is the book of the gospel, the Bible. When Paul was writing to Timothy, we're considering the letters to Timothy in our Wednesday series, we're just about to finish the first letter. In the second letter, there are some well-known verses in chapter 3. Paul says to Timothy, the Holy Scriptures... The Bible, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. No one has ever been saved without the truth of the Bible. The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Those Scriptures are given by inspiration of God and through them you may be complete as a Christian and be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible itself tells us that it has to be our starting point, but it also must continue to be our only point of reference. And we'll unpack these verses a little this morning, along with a few others, as we take the Bible itself as our theme to begin with. What is the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? Why is the Bible so necessary? One of the things that us Christians are um, accused of, if we can put it that way, is that we, we keep going on about the Bible. I remember someone in work many, many years ago. Uh, Why do you keep banging on about the Bible, he said. Well, it's the only thing we've got, isn't it? It's the only thing we've got. Question one, what is the Bible? What is it? Well, it's, it's a collection. It's a library of 66 books, yet it's also one book. So by the term Bible, we're talking about the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments and nothing else. So how may we understand the Old Testament? 
Well, at a very basic level, you can think of it like this. It's 39 books. It's 17 books of history. Genesis to Esther. So the Bible goes from the book of beginnings. The the book of Genesis tells you about the beginning of very many things. And it runs all the way through to 400 years before Christ came into the world. 17 books of history. They're followed in our English Bibles by five books of poetry and wisdom. Job to Song of Solomon. And then there's 17 books of prophecy. Isaiah to Malachi. If you wanted to, those two groups of 17 can be can both be split down further into 5 and 12. The books of history, you have the five books of Moses and 12 others. And in the 17 prophets, you've got five major prophets and 12 minor ones. So the Old Testament is 17, 5, 17. History, poetry and wisdom, and the prophets. And then in the New Testament... Well, of course, they begin with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the Gospels are not strictly biographies of Christ. They're Gospels. They focus upon his incarnation and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. They say very little about his childhood except one occasion when he was 12 years old. They say nothing really about his teenage years or about his early adult life because it's not, strictly speaking, a biography. They are Gospels telling forth the good news of Christ. Then there's one historical book recalling the Acts of the Apostles, the history of the infant church. Then you've got 21 letters, Romans to Jude, most written to churches or groups of churches, a few written to individuals. And in those letters, we're instructed as to what we are to believe and how we ought to behave, both as individual Christians and as members of a local church. Doctrine, and then the difference that doctrine should make in your life. And then the New Testament concludes with Christ's closing revelation to John. And he speaks to John through the medium of seven letters and seven visions. And they talk about the many trials and tribulations that all churches throughout all the ages can expect to experience. And then it concludes with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment, the eternal condemnation of the lost and the eternal salvation of the redeemed. The Bible tells us of things even before the world was, And the Bible even tells us of things when the world is no more, as we know it. This is what the Bible is. Now, the earliest Old Testament books were written approximately 1,500 years before Christ. And the final New Testament books were written at the end of the first century A.D., So this Bible was about 1,600 years in the writing and involved approximately 40 human authors. 
And although it's comprised of 66 books, it actually has a harmony and a unity that defies human explanation. How can such different people in such different circumstances over such a vast period of time write with such harmony? And the Bible has a central theme running all the way through it. And the Bible's central theme is his salvation of sinners, which will be accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's its central theme from beginning to end. Now, in talking about things like salvation and sinners, there may be some who aren't quite sure what that just means. Well, let me urge you to keep on coming along each Sunday morning as this series will unpack all of these things. As we explain and seek to answer that basic question, what is the faith of the gospel? What is it? But we're starting first of all with the Bible. What is the Bible? Well, at a very basic level, it's a library of 66 books, yet one book by about 40 human authors. But it's also very much more than that. And what else the Bible is comes into view as we consider where it came from. Question number two, where did the Bible come from? The Bible itself makes unique claims about itself. And the claims that are made about the Bible in the Bible are not claimed by any other book and cannot be claimed by any other book. It is unique. Because what the Bible actually tells us is that as those 40-odd men held their pens and sat down to write, they themselves were held in God's hand. And he was directing them in such a way that even though the words that they wrote down were their own words, and even though those words were just based upon their own thoughts, all of those words are, at the same time, everything that God wanted them to say. To such a degree that every word in the Bible is to be read and received as the word of God. Because that is what it is. The word of God. So what was actually going on as these men's these men are holding their pens, but God is holding them. Well, there's a, a technical expression that you might sometimes come across, uh, and it's this, concursive operation. What on earth does that mean? It means two processes that seem to be completely independent, but are working together at the same time. 
Now it's difficult for us to understand fully, I confess this. But it's not that God was kind of dictating to them. It's not that they were hearing a voice and they were writing down what they were hearing. But that God is so guiding their thoughts and their insights that while it was very much their own writing in their own style, in their own language, be it Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, it was nevertheless precisely what God wanted them to say. The Bible describes it in a few different ways. So, for example, in the second letter of Peter, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, we read this. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it didn't come merely from the mind of a man. And it didn't come merely from the pen of a man because it was not the will of a man that was behind it all. It's not according to personal wisdom, but as the Spirit of God moved in each one. Now, Peter, you'll recall, was a fisherman. And the word that he uses for moved, as they were moved by God, it's exactly the same word that you would use for a fishing boat being moved through the water by the wind in the sail. As these men were writing, they were being moved along by the Holy Spirit and he was guiding every thought and every word so that it is indeed the word of God that we hold in our hands today. We read earlier from 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now we think of the word inspiration of someone maybe suddenly popping a brilliant idea into our heads. It's not actually what it means in the Greek. It means God breathed. God is breathing out his word through them as they're writing so the Bible comes by means of men, but much more importantly, it comes from God. It is the word of God. Every word. It isn't a book, as some suggest, which simply contains God's word, but you have to find where it is. No, every word is the word of God. It isn't, as some suggest, only becoming the word of God as God somehow makes it real to you. No, it is in every way and in every word the word of God. Now, it's interesting. There's a lot of debate as to when, for example, the New Testament was written. The Apostle Peter, we've already read from 2 Peter chapter 2. In the very next chapter, chapter 3 verse 16, Peter is making some comments about the writings of the Apostle Paul. And then he says, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. As they do the rest of the Scriptures, 
what Peter is actually doing there is explicitly teaching that at the time that the New Testament was still being written, the writings of the Apostle Paul were being received and accepted as Scripture. Now, some would argue that all of these things were established centuries later, but Peter himself, at the time that the New Testament is still being written, says the writings of Paul are being accepted and acknowledged as the Word of God. Now, that raises an important question. How do we know what is Scripture and what isn't? How can we be confident that these 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are the only books that should be there and that we have them all? That's a good question. That's an important question. How can we know? How can we be certain? Well, let's think about the Old Testament first of all. I'm tackling this at a very basic level, you'll understand. It's a matter of historical fact that at the time when Jesus was alive, the Jews had a very definite collection of writings which they referred to as their scriptures. And those collected writings were exactly the same writings that we have in the Old Testament of our English Bibles today. Now in the Hebrew, they were arranged in a different order, but they were the same books. It's from those writings that Jesus and the apostles frequently quoted and in so doing confirmed their authenticity. Were there other books that people read? Yes, there were. The rabbis wrote books, but they were never considered to be part of scripture. The apostle Paul occasionally quotes things that are not from the Old Testament in much the same way that a preacher today might quote some well-known phrase from Shakespeare or Dickens, perhaps as a means of illustration or application, but they're not for one moment suggesting that the writings of those men should be placed alongside Scripture, are they? Neither was Paul when he occasionally quoted other writings. There's no argument about which books make up the Old Testament. Neither is there actually about the New Testament. Unless you're a sceptical liberal who's made it your life's work to rubbish the historic Christian faith and its doctrine, and there actually are more people like that around than we would like. Within a few decades, the early church fathers, some of whom personally knew the likes of the Apostle John while he was still alive, they had quickly established those apostolic writings which would be which were to be placed on an equal footing with the Old Testament. We've already seen the Apostle Peter acknowledging Paul's writings as Scripture. It happened really quickly and early. Now, there are devious ones out there who don't hold to historic church doctrine, and they do try suggest, to suggest otherwise about the New Testament. But down the ages, amongst those who are evangelical believers, there's never really been any dispute to speak of as to the 27 books that we now have in our New Testament. Yes, you can find people who argue differently. Yes, you can find people who put forward different theories. 
But these 66 books, as we find them in our English Bibles, have long been acknowledged and received and accepted as the Word of God. And the only books that should be included. They're understood to have been inspired by God and therefore to be the Word of God. They're understood to be they need to be read and accepted by all who are believers. They, need, they are relevant and applicable to all in every generation. And they're frequently quoted by the church fathers. This is the word of God. Now, some of you might have heard of things like the Apocrypha. Um, the Apocrypha was around in New Testament days. They were mainly writings that were produced in between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, there was a 400-year gap and most of the writings of the Apocrypha were, were produced during that time. But they were never part of the Jewish scriptures. They never accepted them as part of their scriptures. They were never considered to be the word of God. There's no evidence at all that the mainstream early church felt any differently about them. Uh, you can buy Bibles today that do have the Apocrypha in them, but very few. Today, the Roman Catholic Church include them in their scriptures, but actually that was only formally confirmed in 1546 at the Council of Trent. So it's a relatively modern thing. And some Eastern churches also use the Apocrypha. But in terms of the historic Christian faith, those books have uh, never been considered to be part of the Word of God. It's not to suggest that you cannot read them, but you would just read them like you would read Shakespeare or Dickens. And if you're really interested in all of these things, you can go out, you can buy good Christian books that will explain the history behind all of these things if you wish to look at them in further detail. What is the Bible? It's this, it's, well, it's this astonishing collection of 66 books which are yet but one book with this amazing harmony and unity, with this one consistent message that runs all the way through it. And it is actually the very word of God. And why is the Bible so necessary? Why is it that we Christians do keep banging on about the Bible? Why is it that as we go uh, through this series, as we do on any Sunday, here in this church, in every evangelical church, the only book that we'll ever hold out for study is the Bible. Whilst there are other books that can help you in your understanding of the Bible, but the only book we read and study is the Bible. Why is the Bible so necessary? Well, we need to recognise and acknowledge, first of all, that there are certain things that we can know about God without the Bible. There are some things we can know about God without the Bible. So, for example, at the beginning of Psalm 19, we read these well-known words. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. You can look around you at the world that God has made, and you know God is. This is what is referred to as God's general revelation. 
things that everyone can see and that everybody knows. You don't need the Bible to know it. But there are other things that we do need to know, but we can only know them if God reveals them to us. And that's what we call God's special revelation. And that's what the Bible is, God's special revelation. Things that we could not know unless God had specifically told us. So by general revelation, you can look at God's handiwork in his creation and know that God is. And also, you can feel your own conscience prompting and judging you. And you also observe in the world that for the most part, everyone else's conscience works on them in much the same way as yours. And that you all feel guilt and shame over similar things. And you know that God is. When a loved one dies, there's something inside you that craves the assurance that this life is not all there is and that your loved one has gone to a better place. Because you know that God is. When disaster strikes people, people who've gone years without giving God a second thought, they instinctively cry out to God. You remember, like I did, I've mentioned this before, that footballer who collapsed from a cardiac arrest in the middle of a game. And a great cry rang out all across social media. Pray for Muamba. Why? Most of those people had never prayed in their lives. But the truth is, you see, they do know that God is. They do. Some of you have had the experience of workmates, perhaps, colleagues at work, and they are going through, through some great emotional turmoil in their life. And they're people who otherwise would have no interest whatsoever in spiritual things. And you tell them you're going to pray for them. Oh, thank you, they'll say. Yes, please, they'll say. Why? Because they do know that God is. Or if they know you're a Christian, they might even come up to you and ask you to say a prayer for them. Why? Because they do know that God is. They do. It says in the Old Testament, eternity is written in our hearts. We know. And this knowledge that people have is in the Bible. The Bible says people know. There's a great... We've, I've mentioned this several times because it's so important. The introduction that Paul gives to the letters to the Romans. Romans is one of the jewels in the crown in the New Testament in terms of the clarity of its teaching about the gospel and Christian doctrine. But before Paul talks about the gospel and salvation, he makes clear the need that people have for that salvation. And he talks about sin. And he talks about sin with great clarity. 
And he says this from verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, they know that God is, but they suppress that truth inside themselves. 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's you and me. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everybody knows that God is, but they suppress that truth within themselves. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and so on. Everybody knows that God is. God says so in the Bible. Now, a brief aside. If you try to talk to people about the gospel, you'll often get this response. I don't believe in God. I don't believe there is a God. And then they'll give you some reasons why. Do not accept their statement that they don't believe. Why? Because God, in his word who knows them better than they know themselves, says they do know him. God says they do know me. They do, but they suppress that truth within themselves. If you accept their statement that they don't believe in God, you're actually denying what God says is the truth about them. Who's right, them or God? I'm going to go with God. They do know that God is. A lot of Christians fail to make this connection in their thinking. You've got to be guided by the word, not by the word of men. Does God not know us better than we know ourselves? He does. He does. Everyone out there knows that God is despite their protests. The word of God says so. Now, when they give you their reasons for non-belief, it does seem to us to be the obvious and reasonable thing to try and dismantle and remove all their objections. The thinking goes like this. If I can take away all their reasons for not believing, then they'll have no reason to not believe, and so they'll believe. Now, that sounds very logical. That sounds very reasonable. That sounds very obvious. But it is wrong thinking because it is not biblical thinking. It is not what the Bible teaches. It sounds obvious, but it's wrong. That's not how the Bible speaks and the gospel does not work that way. I'll show you. Let's think this through a little bit more first. If it's correct to say that we 
first must tackle all of the reasons that people give for not believing in God, that poses some serious problems. The first one is that places an impossible task at my door. Because I can't do what only God can do. Maybe you think you can. I know I can't. Only God can convince them. Only God can do that work. And here's another thing. If you're faced with people who have very high and intellectual arguments for not believing, this system of thinking says that if I am to remove all of their objections, then I have to be able to match them. I have to be able to match their level of intellect. I have to be able to speak the same kind of words that they speak. I have to be able to think the same big ideas that they can think. And if I can't, well, I can't reach, I can't even begin to, to talk to them about the gospel. Who am I? What can I do? They've got these levels of reasoning and arguments far above my understanding. I can't dismantle those things. So I can't reach them. So there's, there's a group of people over there. There is no point me talking to them about the gospel because I can't do what's necessary. That's the logical conclusion of this way of thinking. That only certain types of people can ever hope to reach certain types of people. That's not what you read in the Bible. Is it? Not the one I've read. The Bible doesn't teach that when it comes to evangelism. And this way of thinking is also a complete denial of everything that the Apostle Paul says about gospel ministry. He went to Corinth, his words, with no clever words or arguments. The gospel doesn't need any. Gospel truth itself is all that's needed. He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I just came and told you about Christ and told you about Christ and told you about Christ. You see, in gospel work, the simple confound the wise. You don't need to be able to match their intellect. It doesn't matter. It's not necessary. Paul stood before the philosophers in Athens. That's like going to Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Yale. That's, that's the top of the top. That's the creme de la creme in philosophy. There's no one wiser, no one better. And how do they refer to the Apostle Paul? As some great orator? As someone in whom they've met their match and met their equal? What did they call him? Do you remember? A babbler. A babbler. What's he saying? He, he didn't embrace their style of talk. He didn't take on board their kind of language and arguments and reasoning. He stood and preached Christ. They called him a babbler. Read on. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. He just stood in front of them and preached the gospel. He just stood in front of them and told them the truth about Christ. He stood in front of them and said, you need to be saved. You're sinners and he's the saviour. That's all he did. But they also said, we'll hear him again. 
and he'd have gone back and just told them the same. When your friends say they don't believe in God, don't accept it. Challenge them. Challenge them. You do know that God is. The Bible says so. Your conscience plagues you. Eternity is in your heart. Where your loved ones go when they die troubles you because you do know that God is. They do. But they suppress this truth in their heart. What are we to do? We're to tell them, simply tell them, declare to them God's truth. Herald to them the saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. You tell them the gospel. God uses the gospel and works in them by his Holy Spirit. He does the convincing in those who believe. He shatters into pieces all their reasons for not believing. He regenerates. He makes alive. He renews their mind. He does it. You just need to tell them. Tell them the truth about Christ and pray that God in his grace by his spirit will do his work. That is the gospel. That's how people get saved. They just need to be told the truth about themselves and God as God has revealed it in his word. That's where your confidence lies in telling others about Christ. Do it God's way and God will work. Well, back to our theme. That was an aside. General revelation, as we call it. That general revelation that we know that God is, it's sufficient to leave everyone without excuse. But God has made known to us through what we call his special revelation, the Bible, other things that we do need to know, but we could never know them unless he's told us. The realities of his own infinite being and person, the realities of sin, the realities of judgment and of heaven and hell, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the abundance of his mercy and grace and of all that is necessary for you to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven, to be saved, to become a child of God forever, to live a life that pleases him. So much more in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. And let me remind you that only the Bible is needed, as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If there's anything that you say you believe in as part of your Christian faith, but you have to go outside of the Bible to support it, then you've stepped outside of biblical Christianity. Only the Bible. Only the Bible. As you read through the Old Testament, certain phrases keep reappearing. Thus says the Lord, and it's in the Bible. In the New Testament, Jesus would frequently be, be heard taking people back to the Old Testament. And what would he say? It is written. It's in the Bible. The Bible alone is our only guide and authority in all matters regarding the faith of the gospel. 
Well, this is just a brief summary and overview of a very large subject, but it's important to state at the outset what it is we're turning to and why. What we're going to accept as being our only reference point and our only source of authority as Christian people. Those who founded and established Baptist church principles in the 1600s after the Reformation understood the importance of turning to the Bible alone. And I'm going to quote a few sentences of theirs. Now, if you've never read what was written by these dear brothers in Christ and brothers in the faith all those years ago, I've got some copies with me of the opening chapter of their confession, which is just about the Bible. I'll leave them on the table there if you've never read it. And there's all kinds of Bible references there. You can read for yourself what the Bible says of itself. It's what we call a self-authenticating book. You don't need anything outside of the Bible. The Bible itself is sufficient. Let me leave you with a few of their words. This is part of the, the statement of faith that we hold to as a Baptist church. The Holy Scripture is the all-sufficient, certain and infallible, that means it has no error in it, infallible rule or standard of the knowledge, faith and obedience that constitutes salvation. Although the light of nature, general revelation, although the light of nature and God's works of creation and providence give such clear testimony to his goodness, wisdom and power that men who spurn them are left inexcusable, Yet they are not sufficient of themselves to give that knowledge of God in which his will, which is necessary for salvation. We need special revelation. In consequence, the merciful Lord from time to time in a variety of ways has revealed himself and made known his will to his church and to be written down in all its fullness. The scripture is self-authenticating. Its authority does not depend upon the testimony of any man or church, but entirely upon God, its author, who is truth itself. It is to be received because it is the word of God, the heavenliness of its contents, the efficacy or the effectiveness of its doctrine, the majesty of its style, the agreement between all its parts from first to last, the fact that throughout it gives all glory to God, the full revelation it gives of the only way of salvation. These, together with the many other incomparably high qualities and full perfections, supply abundant evidence that it is the word of God. At the same time, however, we recognise that our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority is the outcome of the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And that's my great desire and concern as we continue through this morning series. That by God's Spirit, as we consider the Scriptures together, we will be increasingly convinced and assured 
in our hearts so that we do stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel.